You know, I, I'm honestly not that great. <laughs> I'm not that great. I'm just a dude. Um, as I told the first service, this is a rare, occur- rare occurrence. I don't speak that often just because of my life circumstances. So if you are playing your preacher bingo, you can put me down for the win. I am the blue-footed booby of preaching here at Mount Helena. I apologize to all of you who have to sit through the same jokes, okay, if you, if you were here before. I do expect you to laugh at them. This morning, we're going to talk about these two passages, Mark 10 and Matthew 20. If you have your Bible or your phone or any method of looking these up, I would encourage you to open that up. Why don't you go ahead and stick your finger in Matthew 20? We're going to come back to that. We're going to start in Mark. These are, these are parallel passages It's the same story, but the two writers give different perspectives and different perspective, sorry, different uh, views on what they're writing. Oh, is that for me? Well, thank you. I'm going to read through Mark first and then Matthew. Okay. So here's Mark. Who's Mark? Mark is John Mark. He wrote, of the four Gospels, he wrote first. We first learn of him in Acts 12. He is a uh, young man at the time when he meets Jesus. And he probably saw a lot of the things going on around that time. He's not one of the uh, first 12 disciples. But he went on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey uh, into Asia. First, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that you gave to us so that you could show us how much you love us. Thank you for being the word and for modeling a life of servant leadership that we can fashion our lives after. Thank you for laying down your life for the world, even when it hated you, and then conquering death and sin on our behalf so that we could be restored to the Father. Lord Jesus, help us to live out your kingdom and your gospel and a life worthy of the calling you gave us. Give us wisdom this morning. And help us to be open to receiving your teachings. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the twelve disciples, they came up to him, Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, Okay, what do you want me to do? To do for you. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Okay, so the cup and the baptism. Let's let's flag that and come back to it. And they said to him, We're able, and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. We'll explore that a little bit later. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, that has been predetermined by my father, not by me. And when he's heard it, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That's, that's my definition okay, of indignant. And Jesus called to them and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What does that mean? Let's flag that and come back as well. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. And even, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's hop back to Matthew 20. Same story, different perspective. Matthew is also known as Levi, son of Alphaeus. He was a scummy Jewish tax collector who was called by Jesus himself to be one of his 12 disciples. So this is his firsthand account of what he saw. He was one of the 10 that became indignant. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him. Wait, the mother? The mother? The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. And then he goes and he addresses the sons. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? There it is again. And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, oh, let me come back to that. Let me emphasize that. He says to that, he said, they said, oh yeah, we're able. Oh yeah. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And then the 10 heard it and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. They lord their authority. There it is again. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in the first passage, the two sons come up and ask. In the second passage, their mom asks. So who's right? I would say, Probably both. Okay, so let's give it a little perspective here. Their mom's name is Salome or Salome. We find this out later. Okay, um, she's married to Zebedee, which means that she's Jesus's aunt, which makes James and John Jesus's cousins. Did you know that? They are his cousins. So, from the different perspectives of the writers. One is like, their mom came, she was the one that asked, but the other one emphasized, actually, yeah, I know it was their mom that asked, but it was really those boys. They were prompting their mom. They have different perspectives for what I would say, at face value, a crazy request to sit at the right and left of the king of kings. People have different perspectives. Let me put it another way. How many of you have seen this picture? Okay, how many of you, I remember this from when I was a kid, how many of you see the old woman? Okay, how many of you see the young lady? Okay, so there are, it's about half and half. 
Here we go. If I show over here, you can see here's the eye of the young lady, and here's her chin, and here's her necklace, okay? And the old lady, there's her big nose and her mouth and her eye, okay? Oh, oh I see it now. Okay, different perspectives. We're looking at the same picture or two people are looking at the same event, seeing two different. And I see some of you are pointing and you're like, no, like, look, look, there's her eye right there. No, I don't see it. What are you talking about? Okay, moving on. Oops. Wait, oh, we, people are like, no, don't move on. Okay, we're just going to camp here for the next 20 minutes and then dismiss. <laughs> Now, we're going to move on. For those of you who, who are listening on audio or can't see it, we have a six or a nine laying on the ground. One side is saying it's a six. The other is saying it's a nine. Different perspectives. Boat, I'm saved. Land, I'm saved. Who's really saved? Neither of them. Different perspectives. And then there's this perspective. This one makes my blood boil. How many of you remember this? This is the fail Mary play. You got this guy right here saying interception and the guy standing two feet from him saying, that's a touchdown. Look at the score. It's 12 to 7. How much time is left in the game? Zero. It makes all the difference. So they went to replay and from this perspective, they got it wrong. I'm a Packers fan. They got it wrong. Tyler would probably disagree with me. He has a different perspective. Man, those referees, they got it right. Okay. Different perspectives. Obviously, the authors wanted to emphasize a different facet of the event. But regardless of what we, what, what we see, it looks pretty arrogant right from the get-go that they would ask for second-in-command authority. The other 10 disciples certainly thought so. Okay, they're indignant. Mostly, I think, because, well, they didn't think of it first. But it's really not as arrogant or forward as you would think. Let's go back and talk about what has happened up until this point. Let's look at some facts, okay, of why they would ask this. Number one, these guys left everything. They left everything. They left everything behind. They left their business and yes, their, their parents are there, but they left their family business. They left their parents behind. They left their possessions to follow Jesus. They heard him claim God's kingdom was here and will be coming to fulfillment. The kingdom is here. The king is here. They saw him confess that he was the son of God and the Messiah, whom the Jews had been waiting for for centuries. They were especially appointed and sent out with authority to preach and to cast out demons as his disciples and his personal representatives. He took them aside to explain the meaning of parables, meaning that they had special knowledge of the meaning of his teachings. They witnessed numerous miracles. They were the only ones invited, along with Peter, three of them, to see him transfigured on the Mount of Olives with Moses and Elijah. And this, they saw the Spirit of God come and rest upon him, and they heard the voice, this is my son. And then, right before this event. I mean right before. As in, right, in, right, in, uh, right before in Mark and the previous chapter in Matthew. 
this is what happened. Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter, one of those three, says in reply, See, look, look, we have left everything for you, and we followed you. What then will we have? What, what's there for us? What do we get out of this? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious thrones, throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters and father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What would you expect them to ask? We've left everything. We have nothing, but you do get to rule. So Jesus, me and my brother, you know, we were there at the transfiguration. We were there. So Jesus, we were wondering, you said, ask and we will receive. Knock and it will be given to you. So we thought maybe it wouldn't hurt to ask, right, Jesus? That's what you said. We just thought we would ask. Maybe me and my brother could be on either side of you. James and John assumed that their closeness to Jesus, combined with their willingness to sacrifice much and work hard for his kingdom, would earn them high positions. That's the way of the world, including what they thought the kingdom of God would bring. I would expect that. If I had a job and I wanted a higher authority or position, my willingness to work hard and my proximity to the big boss might get me what I need. But Jesus doesn't scold them, and he doesn't tell them they're being ridiculous. He asks them a question, a pointed question. It's a question of whether they're qualified to do that or not. Are you, first of all, you, first of all, you don't know what you're asking. Second of all, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? What is he talking about? What is this cup? What is this baptism? He references it again when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the Last Supper, this cup. In the Old Testament, the cup is referred to as blessing. But this is not blessing. This cup symbolizes the cup of divine wrath poured out onto Jesus that he would drink on behalf of his people in order to save them from their sin. It's a cup of suffering. It's the baptism of suffering. And so he asks them, you would expect, are you able to do this? And he asks this in the Greek like a rhetorical question. So are you able to do this? 
a rhetorical question, expecting that they're going to say no. But you know how they answer? Oh, yeah. Of course, we got this. In fact, they would eventually drink that cup of suffering because James would be martyred and John would endure a tremendous amount of suffering. They would share in the cup. And when they did at the, at the Last Supper, they shared in that cup. But they didn't know what that meant. You think you know. Yeah, we got this. We are able. You think you know. And you have lots of experience with this. I know you do because I have tons of experience. You think you know, but you really don't know. If you're married, you think you know, but you don't know. You think you know what they're thinking. You think you know when you walk through the door. You don't know. My six-year-old thinks that he is Tony Hawk. He is an amazing skateboarder. He can barely stand up on that thing. He has no perspective whatsoever about, about, about that. No self-awareness. We have to wear masks these days. You think you know. I went to Costco this last week, and I saw a friend walking down the aisle, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go say hi to her. This is really cool. So I'm just going to, I strode up to her confidently, and I stood about this far from her, and I looked in her eyes, and I said, hi. And she looked at me, She's like, hi. And I was like, huh. I said, okay, well, I took my mask off and I said, I'm going to let you see me smile. How you doing? She goes, good. She says, do I know you? She takes her mask off, not my friend. I'm like, oh my God. I said, obviously not. I don't know you. And I actually, I said, hi, my name is Jeff. <laughs> And she says, nice to meet you. (laughs) You think you know, but you don't know. But actually, Jesus agreed that they would, again, drink his cup and receive his baptism. They would not escape the suffering. So we move on, and we find out the ten, they're indignant because they wanted the same. They didn't have the boldness to ask. So Jesus says to all of them, okay, I get it. You guys, are, you guys are ticked off. They're asking. You didn't ask. Let's talk about authority. Let's talk about leadership. Let's see what this looks like. Okay? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. On the earth, the rulers of men, those in authority, jockey for position, to be honored. In this case, it was the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities. Everybody's vying for position to be in charge, to have their voice heard. They hold the rulers of the Gentiles, meaning, well, anyone in authority, frankly, hold authority over people's heads. Our culture, humans, we seek respect Dignity, worth by grasping and grabbing at power. Holding on, lording it over others, and throughout history, it has been fraught with injustice and violence. I will make you respect and follow me in my ideals. In America, we still fight and we jockey. 
We jockey to get our bills passed and laws written. But in the meantime, we shame others who do not follow our, our truth. And we use the power of media and social media and politics and laws and judicial appointments to make you submit. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the most highly honored in the kingdom will be those who put others first. Positions of authority come from servanthood and humility. Even in the church, the jockeying that goes on is clear. Even with this command, in the church, we desire to make change, have a greater role, be an authority, to be recognized, to have our accomplishments seen. I've noticed this, and it's been my whole life I see it, and I am certainly not exempt from it. When I first came to Mount Helena, uh, I, I was here for a little bit, and I strode up to the senior pastor. His name is Brian Acey. He was here two weeks ago. And I announced to him, I am ready. Put me where you need to. I have so much experience in this and this and this. Go ahead, and I'm ready to serve. But you know what I was really asking? I was really asking, I am looking for a role, and I'm looking for authority. Please, I'm ready to be in charge of something and somebody's. Okay? So his response was, not what I expect. He's like, oh, wow, you got experience in worship and teaching and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's great. But guess what? I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do anything except this. Get to know people and serve them. That is not what I expected. That is not. I'm like, wait, so what position is that? Like, it's not a position. Just love people. Invite them over. Get to know them. Love them. Serve them. And that is servanthood. Not seeking authority. So, let's transition to the application. How does the scripture apply to us today? 2020. Jesus is not only talking about seeking positions of authority. Because we could leave it at that and we're like, oh, okay, well, we shouldn't be seeking authority. I don't think that he's just talking about that. He's also talking about our heart posture, our attitude toward others. So let's talk about heart posture and our attitudes. Have you noticed anything that has changed in 2020 since the previous year? Kobe died. I think that's about it. Of course, a lot has changed. And it's our human nature to fight change, to freak out, to perceive change fearfully. And I'm not talking about change like, yay, we have a new baby. Yay, I got a new job. Yay, I got a new car. Okay, I'm not talking about that kind of change. I'm talking about the change that is disruptive in our lives. And we often experience heart changes during those disruptions like anxiety, fear, a sense of loss, and anger. Have you noticed anger in our culture? I have. There are a lot of people mad about the change that we have been asked to make or are required to make in our lives. In 2020, over the, over, and over the years, people in authority over us and then others in our, 
our country, the Gentiles, are asking us to make changes. Sometimes they don't ask. They tell us. Some of them we accept. Some we don't. Some we bristle at. I don't like that. Some of you may perceive a change as good. Some of you find it disruptive or inconvenient or unfair or unconstitutional. That change is unconstitutional. How dare you ask me to do that? So I want you to take a minute and look at this list. I, this is like right off the top of my head. I just typed it out in like three minutes. I didn't include like climate change or like there's so many more things that people are mad about. What are some opinions, beliefs, perspectives that you have formed over the last nine months looking at this list? I have. I have definitely formed opinions and beliefs about things. But today I'm not going to give you my opinion about recent events or what to think about. I seriously am shocked at people's anger and incredulity over a thin little piece of cloth that we must put over our face. Not that I will tell you what I believe about whether they're effective or not, or what we should do with them or not. But Christians' responses to them, or social distancing, or canceling sports so I can't watch my high school son play football, or decisions made to close businesses, or those that have failed, what to believe about Black Lives Matter, my reaction when I'm told that white America still has underlying racism problems, and when I think about the vicious attacks, unrelenting cruelty, and unwillingness to compromise on both sides of the political aisle, should I take a side or remain neutral? I'm not going to tell you what to think about these issues. But what I want to do is I want you to take these, look at them, and overlay them with this. It shall not be so among you. He's talking to us. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is Jesus telling his disciples to do? What is he telling them? You, me, us. Okay. Let's apply. What I think he's trying to say is we need to go to Facebook and point out to your brother-in-law how wrong and stupid he is. And then go read the YouTube comment section, which is the seventh circle of hell, and get super mad and despair about how America is going down the toilet, and then sign an online petition so you felt like you were accomplishing something, and then you 
make sure that you find someone else here at church who agrees with you and then spending 20 minutes griping about it. That's what I think he's saying. Obviously not. That was sarcasm. That is not servant leader attitude, servant leadership attitude. If we're going to take on true servant leadership to, be a, to serve, to be a slave, we must change our heart postures. If we're going to make a difference in others' lives, as Jesus says, do it by coming under them to hear their heart with understanding, empathy, kindness, compassion, humility, to serve them, to care about their needs, to find out what they need, to listen to their perspective, and to give your life to them. What did you just say? Give your life to them? They're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. What they believe is unbiblical. Give my life to them? Let's encourage each other not to complain. Let's spur each other on to good works. Let's take an attitude that my rights, my rights, my individual rights are not important, but it's the person. It's the service that's important. Who is great? Who has authority in the kingdom of God? Who does God value as leaders? Who does God want us to be? Being great is laying down ourselves, laying down our needs and wishes and desires and our lives to serve others who are not like us. I prefer parts of the Bible that already agree with my opinions. Can we just skip this? So let's follow what Jesus modeled and taught us to clothe ourselves in humility and give ourselves over to serve. The son of man, let's go ahead. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Being great means giving our lives over to others, not whom we agree with, even those who hate us, to drink the cup of suffering. That doesn't sound right, Lord. That doesn't sound right, but you said it. So let's ask ourselves, in closing, these are hard questions. For what in your life has your right to do, say, or become superseded Jesus' example of humility and command to be a servant to all? Where in your life has your opinion or desire to be right, or preference become more important than someone else. Two, what is one thing that I can do today to lay down my own opinions and to serve someone different than me?
We do not all think the same. We do not believe the same about things. We have different perspectives. We think differently about issues. We have different judgments about political, cultural, economic issues. But it's Jesus, the gospel, the word, the savior that brings us all together. Despite our differences, despite not agreeing, Jesus unites us. Not partisan politics. Jesus unites us. He brings unity amidst diversity. Psalm 133, how pleasing is it when the people of God come together in unity. It's like oil running down Moses' beard. God wants our unity. The elders here at Mount Helena Community Church are absolutely committed to keeping right doctrine, to faithfully holding fast to the inerrancy of Scripture, the sacrifice, salvation, the lordship, the headship of Jesus Christ over this body, the rejection of sexual immorality. We're absolutely committed to holding right doctrine. We're committed to primary doctrines of the church. The vision that I have, the vision that our elders have for those of us regarding tertiary issues, political issues, is for outsiders to see our church, our people, and say, wow, you guys love each other and you love other people who are not like you across political divide. You listen to each other without a strident tone. Oh, how beautiful it would be to act together in unity and have a a heart of service. We are not a national or ethnic or class gathering. That is not us. We are simply a gathering of followers from every tribe and tongue and nation. We're gathered together to his kingdom, faithful to his word, faithful to his teaching, faithful to the gospel, and a faithful to the call to serve others despite our differences or their opinions or torn or tone toward us. It doesn't matter how people treat us. What matters is that we are faithfully following the servant call of Jesus. What's one thing that you can do today to lay down your own opinion and serve someone who's not like you? One thing. It shall not be so among you. To lord authority and my opinion and my preferences over someone else. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is great? the one who would serve someone that you disagree with. Who is great? That's who's great in the kingdom. The one who serves, even if we're not like them. Here's a hard question. Can we be great? I think we can. I think this church 
I think we can. I think we can be great. I think we can serve. We can love. We can do it in humility and blessing and kindness. Let's be great together. Would you stand? There will be a prayer team up here to my left. If you would like to pray with someone for a number of different reasons, maybe you haven't submitted completely to the lordship of Jesus in your life, that you'd like to talk to someone about that. I would like to, I would like to submit myself and believe with my mouth that Jesus is Lord for the rest of my life. Maybe you'd like to do that. Or maybe you would like to repent. Maybe you'd like to repent of your attitude and tell someone, I've been like this. Because I have. I've, been, I've, I've had a rotten attitude. Maybe you'd like to talk to someone about that. Or maybe you just like to have someone to pray with just in general. They're up here. Let's pray. Lord, you are a gracious God and you are forgiving and long-suffering. And even with our stinky attitudes, you are patient with us. You are patient to see us unified, to see you glorified, to have a servant heart. And Lord, we repent. We repent from any, any attitude that we would, might have against someone else. And we, we desire, I desire, to serve others as you have set an example to serve others, even to the point of laying down our own life. God, we thank you for your word and your kindness and your patience with us. We love you. Be glorified in your son's name. Amen.